You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Well, welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn. And today we have a very special guest. We have Mr. P. Andrew Sandlin. He is the founder and president of the Center for Cultural Leadership. He's leading faculty at Evan Runner Institute for Leadership, and he teaches at the Ezra Institute and the Worldview Leadership Camps in the summer. Andrew, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate the offer. Absolutely. So just so people can follow along, I would encourage them to do so. You do a lot of writing. Uh, where are some of the places that people can find what you've written most recently? Okay, so there's several. Um, I uh, do a weekly e-newsletter called Culture Change, and the platform is Substack. If you just do a search for my name, P. Andrew Sandlin, you can do that, and you can easily subscribe to that. Uh, also, you can see some writings at the CCL website, Christian Culture, written solidly as one word. Uh, dot com, and I also blog uh, at uh, DocSandlin.com. Doc, this written as one word, DocSandlin.com. That's of course digitally. Um, you can also check out. A, I've got a lot of eBooks now. I'm doing a lot of those hard copies too, but more and more eBooks it seems, since people really read those. It seems a lot more. Yeah, and those are at Amazon. Just check out uh, my author's page at Amazon. There are a bunch of uh, eBooks there. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and I saw there was a new one, uh, I think it's called Defend the Faith that you've written. Um, just a feel for some of the ebooks that you've written recently, maybe even just talk about that one, Defend the Faith. But w- what is that about? What can people expect from it? Yeah, uh, that is a collection of short uh, chapters, articles on uh, issues uh, that are pressing Christians today and um, are attacking the uh, the Christian faith, uh, everything from uh, cultural Marxism to uh, statism to uh, some of the uh, onerous uh, COVID lockdowns, um, other attacks, of course, in the church, our uh, critical uh, race theory and more broadly critical theory, um, and uh, the topic of our conversation today. Um, a false and misguided pietism. So, I mean, those are some of the things you'd read about in that uh, in that latest ebook called "Defend the Faith." Yeah, that sounds that sounds excellent. And I think addressing some of the most, as you mentioned, some of the most pertinent issues today. Well, one of the first things I want to do as we'll jump into this discussion about pietism, but more generally, you you and Joseph Boot and some other people have written on what what you guys have called cultural theology. So just generally, why is this so important to be talking about today? Why are you guys doing so much teaching on it? And, and what is it addressing in the culture at large? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, what has been neglected uh, largely in the last oh, 100 years or even 200 years in the West has been uh, a rigorous, uh, distinctively Christian and biblical application of the faith in issues beyond the family and the church. So cultural theology, uh, as I define it, 
is uh, the assessment of uh, cultural issues in a distinctly Christian and a biblical way. So uh, cultural theologians, and I think I've, I've got a short article on that online. You can always Google, people can always Google, but cultural theologians are people who do not address issues so much in the traditional loci like um, hamartiology, the doctrine of sin, or Christology, the doctrine of Christ. Those are vitally important, but rather issues ranging from um, true humanity, preborn life, the abortion issue, biblical sexuality, a biblical view of the environment, a biblical view of uh, property and wealth and economics and of medicine uh, and of technology and so on. So those are kind of cultural issues. Behind this, Eric, is the idea that the Bible was not written only to deal with familial and ecclesial issues, but also written to address wide cultural issues, and that the Bible was also written to govern all of life. Yeah, I think that's huge, especially as as we begin to unpack this um, this concept, the concept of Pietism, is that really a lot of people today, pastors included, basically just want to address Christianity in the church. This is something Joe Boot has called churchianity, um, and and right, what we're claiming is that Scripture is for all of life in every area of life, and so this cultural theology is seeking to apply it. Um, in all of these other contexts. What would you say to pastors and people in the church today? I'm sure you probably get this, but a lot of people have talked a lot about this gospel-centered theology. Basically, we only want to talk about soteriology or you know, the doctrine of the atonement or something like that. Why is some of that problematic? Whenever people say, you need to get back to the gospel and we need gospel-centered churches, I always tell them I agree wholeheartedly but I'm not sure that you understand the full extent of the gospel. Hmm. Uh, the gospel is the evangel, you and Gilead, it can't be reduced to soteria or soteriology. Uh, the gospel is the good news of how God in Jesus Christ and his atoning death and his glorious resurrection and his present session and his present reign, how God in Jesus Christ is incrementally turning back evil in all areas of life and thought. That, in a short space, in summary form, is the gospel. Uh, unfortunately, the gospel, the evangel, has been reduced to soteria, which is my personal salvation, and uh, flowing out of that my personal sanctification, and then going to heaven when I die. That certainly is an aspect, and a vital aspect, of the gospel, but it certainly doesn't exhaust the gospel. So in many ways, what CCL and groups like Ezra and others uh, are doing is calling people back to the gospel. We do want a gospel-centered faith, but that's not the same as soteria or a soteriologically-centered faith. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful distinction. Now, would you see, do you think the gospel-centered stuff, you know, the gospel coalition, that sort of, that sort of movement, do you think it was flowing out of pietism, or do you think pietism came from it, or, or what's the relationship? No, uh, I think it did flow out of pietism. There's a long history of, of that in uh, American evangelicalism. There have been professed evangelicals in the 19th century, for example, the abolitionists and so on, that did apply the faith and culture, but I would say by and large, and particularly in the 20th century, evangelicalism has been heavily influenced by pietism. And so for them, the evangel is largely reduced to soteria. And there are groups, uh, 
the um, Gospel Coalition that began with a desire to stress the reformational elements of soteriology and the church and the family. Uh, that was the vision of um, D.A. Carson and Tim Keller that started it. Yeah. Um, by not, in my view, one reason that they have little by little begun to incorporate false ideas like uh, critical race theory and various others is because from the beginning they were not committed to a full-orbed gospel, full-orbed faith. By the way, you would tend to see that, the history of that, and largely in the Dutch Calvinism of the 19th century with Abraham Kuyper, yeah. and in the 20th century with uh, Hermann Duyeveerd, and then uh, her Dutch uh, Hermann Bovink, and then Van Til, and people like that. They understood, uh, and of course they've had a large influence on me, they understood that the faith must be very broad and comprehensive, just as the gospel is. Yeah, I think that's hugely important, um, and it and it brings us kind of the 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 main crux of this episode. And I want to ask you, where did this Pietism come from historically, and then sort of how it made its way to be so prominent here in America? Yeah, it's uh, the the Pietistic movement actually began in Germany uh, in the 17th century, the second half. Uh, in fact, really the last quarter of the 17th century with the noted German Lutheran, Philip Spainer. Um, so it began in Lutheranism. It began uh, with good intentions, as a lot of uh, movements do, against <laughs> yeah. the sort of cold, hard, dead uh, orthodoxy in Lutheranism at the time. The Lutherans would just argue scholastically over every little distinction. And this was also true of many of the Reformed. So Spainer wrote a book uh, and started a movement emphasizing the importance of Christians working together and personal piety and uh, just reading the Bible and caring for one another and private Bible studies and one's vertical relationship with the Lord. Uh, of course, that of itself is not wrong. We certainly do need zealous Christians, and we don't need to be fighting about secondary issues. Right. Over time, however, this pietism, and it began to impact um, not just the Lutherans, but the Reformed, and in, their, in its own way, the Anglicans. In fact, I would say the Roman Catholics also had their version uh, of it. It wasn't through this stream. But nonetheless, among Protestants, it eventually and gradually uh, reduced to the idea that the only thing that's really important in the Christian life is my uh, heart relationship, my vertical relationship to God, and my horizontal relationship with individual Christians. What was lost was any idea of Christendom and Christian culture and reshaping all of life to the glory of God. That uh, even modern evangelicalism, which began probably in England, largely had that pietistic impulse. Yeah. Of course, Wesley was in the uh, 18th century, uh, 19th century, and then and his influence into the 19th century. And then you had even good Calvinists like Whitfield and others that were really good men. But over time, this evangelicalism uh, developed into the idea that the, the, the agenda for the Christian life is being right with God personally, having your own quiet time, getting prayers answered, going to church, having a strong Bible-believing church, uh, getting other people converted. There's the evangel, and often it's the used language of getting souls saved bringing them into the church and sort of living a godly life and preparing for heaven. The problem is not so much in what it affirmed as in what it either denied or dismissed. 
and it dismissed the older uh, Puritan and uh, more broadly Christian version of Christendom and Christian culture of all of life under the authority of God and his word. The whole idea of a Christian society. When I say that, I don't mean everybody in the society was Christian. I mean Christian truth suffusing all areas of life and thought. That's what is lost. And in many ways, pietism is the antithesis of that vision that I just said. Yeah, that, that's really important to point out. Um, in terms of effect as you see it today, I mean, as you're describing that, I'm thinking like, okay, this is like every Baptist evangelical church that I grew up in, basically. Right, right. And, and I think what I've noticed as well is it's particularly hard on masculinity and men because this form of pietism, right, it tends to be pretty emotionalistic. Um, most men are hardwired to, like, I want to build culture. I want to be involved in my vocation. I think wealth matters in the terms of the kingdom. But most of this pietism, correct me if I'm wrong, is generally about, you know, wealth doesn't matter. Um, even what you do in your job doesn't matter. Um, it, it's just about, do you have a good relationship with Jesus? And oftentimes, the way they view it is, if things are horrible for you, you're poor, you're persecuted, things are going in a, in a terrible fashion, it's almost seen as like, that's better. Yeah, um, I think I... In fact, I wrote on that, I think, a couple weeks ago in Culture Change on, um, I use the expression persecution porn, uh, people <laughs> who just uh, long for persecution as an indictium or a proof of their spirituality. Uh, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. You're also right to say that this evangelicalism, though unintentionally, is uh, surprisingly and sadly well-suited to an ecclesiastical version of modern feminism. Interesting. Uh, because uh, men do tend to have, uh, and women too, in their own way, in their own sphere, but have this dominion uh, impulse in them. And I think what modern evangelicalism does is try to tamp down on that, try to dismiss it, try to uh, redirect it into warm emotional feelings and uh, relationalism and so on. Uh, these are qualities that are good qualities that are primarily tend to be seen in uh, women, and women do them very well, and thank God for that. Uh, it'd be terrible if we had a world right. without women. In fact, if we didn't have women, we wouldn't have a world. So that's, <laughs> that's not right. the issue. Um, but you're right. Uh, this evangelicalism, and that's why evangelicalism is sort of predominant, increasingly dominated by women, and churches are, and that's why the whole issue, in my view, the whole issue of evangelical preachers and teachers has come up lately. It's no surprise it should have. It's just sort of the logical outworking of this uh, highly feminized uh, conceptual premise within evangelicalism that's been around for decades. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I'm curious too, Andrew, the other areas in which you've seen pietism shape both the church, but then, but then look at American culture. Um, one of the things that I've noticed um, is that, you know, you had guys like Ray Ortland recently on Twitter who has actually said, you know, Bible Belt culture is dying and I rejoice at this. Mm. So there's an interplay here, though, right, between the way pastors are acting toward the culture and then where the culture is at. So, again, just how do you see pietism affecting American culture in that way? Yeah, uh, it's interesting you would say that about Ortland. I've also, and probably, I think, writing for this Friday uh, in response to and critique of an article yesterday that uh, the conservative and PCA writer David French put out in which he attacked uh, 
Christendom, and he said Christendom right. needs to die. Yeah. Sort of similar to Ortland's idea about the death of the Bible Belt. I think that pietism, essentially, because it reduces the faith to a sort of vertical relationship to God, a heart relationship to God, or sort of warm relationships among church members, and totally neglects the cultural aspects of the faith, it tends to put a high premium on these particular qualities of warmth and, uh, and kindness, and uh, in some ways, what one theologian called pious gush, yeah. uh, rather, than the, rather than the qualities, the very aggressive, uh, uh, and, and saying aggressive, I don't mean unkind and uh, combative, but uh, aggressive qualities uh, that are necessary to be a warrior and uh, a soldier for the king and taking back our culture. Of course, they don't believe that taking back our culture is a legitimate calling. They think that detracts from the true calling, which is building the church and getting everybody ready for heaven. Right. Um, I, that's a fundamental conceptual difference that I have with them. And it's no wonder we would disagree on these other issues, because we disagree on what God is doing in the world. That's yeah. really a question that needs to be asked. What is God doing in the world? For most evangelicals, he is calling out a people, his elect people. If they're Calvinists, his elect people. If not, uh, Arminians, it's more get as many people converted as you can and get them into church and get them living a godly life as we prepare for uh, an eternity away from this earth and eternity in heaven. I think that concept at its very root is fundamentally flawed. Yeah. I don't believe that's what God is doing in the world. Uh, God called man, according to Genesis 1, to exercise godly dominion in the earth under his authority and to bring glory to him in all that we do. Every aspect of creation and culture should be bringing glory to God. And that salvation is a restoration of sinful man to mm. that calling. Now, that's very different from the evangelical paradigm that I just described a couple minutes ago. Yeah, it's hugely different. And I think one of the ways you see that is... I mean, I, I'm continually shocked. Uh, Mark Dever was another one uh, that had said yes. this recently, but just saying, no, heavens no, I don't want to see culture transformed. Um, yeah. and, and it really is only about what's happening in the church. But even that, it, it seems like you really have to cut things off because when you start looking, okay, if it is about the church, well, what does the church do? It makes disciples. What's discipleship for? Going out and changing the world. Uh-oh, now we have a problem. So... I, I'm just curious where you think this anti-culture transformation comes from. Is that also just a direct one-to-one -to, -one to pietism, or is there more going on there? I think pietism is one of the main factors. I think in the United States and Britain, another is the theological paradigm known as dispensationalism, which was also yeah. pietistic uh, in its own way, though it was sort of a, had a separate origin and stream. It's, it's very ironic that you have so many Protestants that are in this sort of let's limit everything to the centrality of the church uh, when they also are highly anti-Roman Catholic. But you see, historically, that's been the Roman Catholic view, that the church is the one great massive sacrament, and the goal is basically for the everything to be brought into and sort of sanctified by the church. And the area outside the church, they would call all that is in the church, that's called grace, and everything outside is nature. That's the Thomistic distinction, the nature-grace distinction. Yeah. One book you've probably heard about, and I'm sure a number of your listeners have read or at least heard about, is the, the book by the neo-Orthodox 
writer Richard Niebuhr, Christ and Culture, uh, he laid out an uh, excellent taxonomy of different views historically of Christianity and culture. Uh, much of modern evangelicalism would fall into what he calls Christ against culture. Uh, that is, the whole point, Jesus Christ came in order to take people away from culture, not to redeem culture, but to separate them from culture. Uh, then there's the liberal paradigm, which none of us believes, Christ of culture, that is, all we do in the church is basically take what is going on in the culture and baptize it in the church, although sadly many evangelicals are doing that. Uh, but his final paradigm is the, is the historic Reformed paradigm, Christ the transformer of culture. It doesn't see culture as normative, but it does see culture as a fit object for redemption on the basis of Christ's uh, atoning work. So I think that evangelicals have simply bought into that paradigm for the longest time. And I think when you, your real nub of your question is great, where did it really come from? I think it goes back to something that we said earlier in the conversation, which is they really don't understand the fullness of the gospel. They define the gospel much more narrowly, in my view, than the Bible defines it. That, I think. There are other things, too, but the pietism flows into that, the dispensationalism flows into that, uh, the ecclesiocentrism flows into that. All of these flow into a lack of understanding of what the gospel really is. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And I think, too, a lot of the level of argument is actually in the church. This kind of ties into pietism, too. Um, a lot of the argument is kind of shallow. So I've had this conversation with people and I say, you know, we, we need to be thinking about transforming the culture. We're in a culture war, whether or not you want to be in one, we're in one. Um, but a lot of times people will say, hey man, just keep it centered on the gospel. And that's kind of where for most people the conversation ends. But one of the trends that's interesting in pietism and in feminism is they can both tend to be anti-doctrinal. Um, and I'm curious why you think maybe that is. Yes, well, that's been, if you think about it for a minute, um, of course, the gospel presupposes doctrine. But for them, uh, if the important thing is this vertical relationship with God and sort of a warm heart devotion, the emphasis on doctrine inherently creates a call to follow, to believe or disbelieve, and therefore a division. Yeah. So because they often don't want division, they don't want doctrine. Uh, I've often heard people say doctrine divides, but Christ unites. Well, that's a false <laughs> antithesis. It is right. true that Christ uh, unites, but even to, be, to talk about Christ is to invoke doctrine. Which Christ? Right. Uh, is Christ God and man? In what sense is he God and man? What is his calling? Did he die? Did he rise? So all of this is the case. So a, a de-emphasis on doctrine and this, by the way, was also a problem with Spainer's um, pietism and historically with pietism. This is why, historically, pietism led to Protestant liberalism. Uh, probably the first Protestant liberal, most people acknowledge as the first Protestant liberal, liberal Friedrich Schleimacher, uh, came from a very pietistic family. Yeah. And he eventually said that the Christian theology and the Christian faith is not about what the Bible teaches, but about what the church feels about yeah. what the Bible teaches. Uh, well, if you don't believe that the Bible is propositional revelation and gives to us doctrine, and everything then is reduced to this um, sort of uh, notion of dependence, he said, dependence on God that's not bounded by certain truths, 
Well, then eventually you can believe anything about Jesus Christ. You don't have to believe he's the Son of God. You don't have to believe in salvation by grace. So pietism is the grandfather of Protestant liberalism. It didn't intend to be. Interesting. But when you you get rid of doctrine, you eventually will buy into um, what's called, what we understand to be liberalism. Yeah, and and there's an interesting connection, I think, too, with the church today. Maybe this is, all the pietism is maybe one of the reasons why the church has been so susceptible to critical race theory, uh, to Marxism. I wonder if you think that's true or or why, I, I mean, I've asked that question because, you know, 15 years ago, uh, I was reading Mark Dever and C.J. Mahaney and John Piper, and I didn't have any inclination at the time that that was going to go woke and socialist. But it has gone down that hill pretty fast. Uh, again, I just want to ask you if, if you see that, and, and do you think that the pietism opened the door for a lot of those things? Yeah, you've actually put your finger on it. So here's what's happened. They have uh, this sort of escapism uh, has suffered revenge. And here's what happened. Because, because at the time they wanted to limit the faith to these issues of warm personal piety and uh, a church that follows Christ and yeah. personal sanctification and not address and not recognize the importance of a comprehensive worldview because of that, thinking that they could protect themselves just by that devotion, we have found them to be sadly wrong. This is a good example. My friend uh, Joe Boot points out so many pastors, <laughs> it's interesting, they'll say, we're going to keep politics out of this church. We're not going to politicize it. We're not going to preach about politics. We're going to protect this church from any political ideas. Well, they never do that, because if the church doesn't get its political ideas from the Word of God on the pulpit, they'll the church will get it from the wider culture. Yeah. You never protect the church from politics by refusing to address, polit- refusing to address politics in the church. That's I think huge. analogously, that's what's happened with these, many of these other ministries. They were blindsided by all this stuff because they didn't stress the necessity of a Christian, a robust Christian worldview that would have protected them from it. They only had very small walls. They didn't have the high walls, the godly walls of a worldview. They had very short walls of sort of personal piety but that won't protect you against alien worldviews. Yeah, that, that's so huge. I, I think the other thing, Andrew, is the um, one of the things inherent in all of this is a sort of antinomian bent. So early in my days, like this is mid-2000s, I remember actually writing John Piper and his son Abraham, I think, responded to me. But, okay, so at the point, I'm like a fundy Baptist. I met going to Southern Seminary, and my question is, I'm looking at the Old Testament, and I say, well, how do you understand the law of God to the New Testament? And that's just, that's not from reading anything. This is like pre-Rashduni, it's pre-any of that. But I sense that there was a whole generation of people saying, well, we have all this content in the Old Testament, and nobody knows what to do with it. And so the answer was, well, just be gospel-centered and, and believe the gospel. And that really, as you pointed out, was a recipe for disaster. So I guess my question with all of that is, you would see, right, you would see antinomianism written in all of this. Yeah, I think pietism leads to that. There's a strong division between the, between the testaments. And because the law of God makes demands uh, on our lives, 
And because they often misread the New Testament when Paul criticizes the law, he always criticizes it in the context of a means of justification. Right. He never criticizes the law as a description of God's holy character and as a standard for our sanctification. No self-respecting Christian in the New Testament era would ever have thought otherwise. They didn't have a New Testament. People don't think about that. I've heard people say, well, we want to establish a New Testament church, or we want to get back to New Testament Christianity. I say, have you ever thought of the fact that people actually living in the era covered by the New Testament never could have thought that way? Right. Uh, This is why Paul again and again has to justify his statements about Christ and about the law and about the gospel by quoting the Old Testament. That's true of the others. Also, the other thing that's really ironic about this, Eric, is this is not a new idea. The Puritans themselves had a very high view of the law. And a lot of the people that you mentioned, I mean, uh, they're not unintelligent. Uh, They know what the Puritans said. But if you ask them privately, and occasionally they'll let this slip, they disagree with the Puritans on that. Oh, the problem with the Puritans is they had a very high view of the law. And we know that's not correct. Well, no, they don't know that that's not correct. Uh, the Puritans were right because they had a view, of, a full view of biblical authority. Antinomianism, of course, is anti-law, and modern evangelicalism is shot through with that. Yeah. Uh, for another reason, and I think at a more basic level, we have to acknowledge, is part of this is that uh, the law of God will put a crimp on their personal autonomy. It's easy for them to say, well, the Holy Spirit led me, uh, or I felt like this today. In my quiet time today, Jesus told me, yeah, And if you say, well, look what the law of God says. Well, I'm not governed by that. I'm governed by what Jesus told me today in my quiet time. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's just uh, an excuse for an exercise of personal autonomy, which is the base form of worldliness. That's what our culture is saying. And so they just put like a nice little spiritual or Christian veneer on it. Yeah, it's really interesting, too, because I think y- you mentioned how some of these guys, you know, Piper's a good example. Um, I was reading Piper, listening to Piper sermons. And in many ways, he was kind of like a gateway drug because he was talking about John Owen. He was talking about Jonathan Edwards. So I went back and read these guys. And it's funny because you would read them, you'd read Calvin, and you'd go, wait a minute, these guys are, you know, a lot of them are Presbyterians, they're Duncan babies. And and some of the newer guys were just kind of picking and choosing the parts that they they wanted to take. But I think for myself, and I know a lot of other people as well, if you start reading those original sources, you start getting opened up to things like, you know, I quickly then after that got involved with reading like Greg Bonson, again, mm-hmm. Rush Dooney, Institutes of Law, mm-hmm. stuff like that. And you're going, wait a minute, these guys have thought through this. And this is really amazing. So I wonder if you see, and this is kind of what I've thought is interesting, but I wonder if you see it, a lot of young people who I didn't really expect. So I'm a millennial. But there are people who follow this podcast, uh, Baptists included, who are coming to me and saying, I, I just read Rush Dooney, and I think I'm post-mill. And I might even become a Presbyterian. What's happening? Mm-hmm. Um, curious if you've seen that, just kind of an awakening of some sort with, with younger people on these issues. Yeah. Uh, let me, there are a number of reasons for that, of course, and not one. But uh, I'll tell you one of those, and that is, I think a lot of those like you, Eric, uh, they see the rise of critical race theory, the rise of cultural Marxism, yeah, these uh, onerous statist COVID lockdown orders. And I think they look at this pietism of the Gospel Coalition, John Piper, and they understand while they may have personal affection for these individuals, 
those ministries and people don't offer the resources. They don't offer the no. theological and conceptual resources for addressing these issues. But you look around at some of these other guys and ministries and that historic Reformed and Puritan vision, and they can say, ah, this is where I can get some resources for addressing these evils of today. I think that's one thing that's driving this movement of a lot of millennials huge. toward a more robust, robust worldview-ish faith. Yeah, that's absolutely huge. I, I know for me, when I was in college, I was a philosophy major. And, you know, we're reading Hume and all this, you know, pagan philosophy and some interesting stuff. And I would go to church and I would say, who here knows how to refute David Hume? And people, you know, or Immanuel Kant were reading um, his book on reason. And, and what do you mm -hmm. do with this as a Christian? And people were like, well, I mean, you pray the sinner's prayer and then you accept Jesus in your heart. And that's all I know. So, and that really yeah. wasn't enough. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. When you find guys who could actually respond to this, who actually had ammunition and they had guns that were bigger than the pagans. It was kind of like, yeah, that's that is actually a big turn on, um, and it and it's a good resource. Well, yeah, I, I think one thing you're implying there. This is another problem that often parallels Pietism, and that is anti-intellectualism. Yes, uh, it's often uh, modern Christians don't feel like it's necessary to address Kantian transcendentalism or Hume skepticism or uh, Nietzsche's postmodernism or so on, not recognizing that if, if Christians don't properly address and refute them, that these ideas will just sort of float around and people will accept them because nobody's refuting them. Yeah. Uh, the fact that we don't refute them doesn't mean that they're not dangerous. Yeah, that's correct. And that's why we need people that do have those resources. But I would, and this is a bottom line issue, the people that have the resources are people that recognize that the Word of God must speak in the totality of life in the totality of all of our experience. And that's not pietism. Therefore, you won't get the resources among pietists to address what's going on in our world today. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely huge. Uh, one of the questions I want to ask, and this is a little bit more about critical race theory, um, but often championed by the pietists. You're seeing this largely in the SBC is where I see it happening right now. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of people on, on the side of refuting critical race theory are saying, hey, look, these guys with false teaching, we need to have a good faith conversation. We need to talk about this stuff out in the open. Let's, you know, work toward compromise, et cetera, et cetera. Just, you have a lot of experience in the church. You have a lot of experience dealing with false teaching. What do you think is the best way to handle something like critical race theory at a denominational level? Like, what should be done? Well, that's a tough question because once it becomes infected in a denomination, then there's machinery that has to, you have to go through this process of addressing it. Well, I think first, you need to have people with the um, intellectual uh, wherewithal to be able to address it and refute it. Yeah. At a denominational level, you need a lot of, I, I would say uh, almost certainly in the SBC, that the vast majority of lay people, if they knew what uh, CRT was, would oppose it. I think acquainting them with that and, uh, having them press for not resolutions that had teeth in them yeah, uh, to uh, eventually uh, fire teachers. Basically, of course, this is going on in the seminary, some of the colleges. So that's apostasy hist historically in the United States and England, who is almost always centered in the seminaries and colleges and higher education, not in the churches themselves. 
The churches mm. are kind of downstream from the apostasy. That's where the pastors go that have been influenced by these folks in the university. So I think uh, uh, passing resolutions, but that alone won't do it. Resolutions that have teeth. Uh, I, I would Let's say, for example, in the SBC, I think dealing with critical race theory in the SBC is ever a bit as important as dealing with the liberals and non-inerrantists as yeah. happened in the 1980s with Al Mohler. So they were able to, thank God, they were able, I mean, a lot of people forget in the 60s, 70s, at 56 and 70s, the SBC was rushing headlong into liberalism. I mean, yeah. it was everywhere, in the, not in the churches so much, but everywhere in the seminaries. And through Al Mohler and people like him, uh, Judge Pressler and others, they were able to turn that around and get, get fired, all these professors that were teaching it. Well, all I'm suggesting is if you could do that for liberalism in the 80s and early 90s, you can do it and should do it for CRT today. Yeah, it's an interesting question. So I was there uh, in 07 to 2012 at Southern Seminary. Um, this is really pre-CRT, but before it had taken any root there. This was not a, you know, Russell Moore was still dean of school of theology, etc. I'm having a hard time today, like looking at it and thinking, why would Moeller fight the inerrancy stuff so well? And really, that was, you know, they championed that issue. You're right. But on this issue of critical race theory and social justice, they're just utterly unwilling to speak clearly on the issue. And that, that concerns me. But I, I wonder, I'm just curious if, if you have any inclination as to why that is. Mm -hmm, I do. It's not a pleasant answer, but you've asked it. And I'll answer you. I think in the present ambiance for people, Christians, to oppose critical race theory is to open themselves up to the charge of being racist. Yeah. Or of at least of being tolerant of racism. Um, I think we need to turn that around and say that's utterly false. CRT is an inherently racist theory, and the racists are the leftists and the advocates of CRT. Yeah. And I don't care if people call me a racist. I know that I'm not. I love black people and Hispanics and Asians, and they're my friends. So I don't have a guilty conscience about that. But I think that uh, even conservatives, in the, not just in the SBC, but as you well know, the PCA, and I hear sadly even some in the OPC now, uh, are opening themselves up to CRT. Uh, and it really is a form of, A, fear, fear of being accused of racism, but also worldliness. It's a popular idea. Yeah. Uh, the media every day when there's a case, it seems every day now, if there is a white cop that shoots a black, then somehow that's, you know, blandished all over the news. Uh, no news at all, of course, black shooting blacks or uh, uh, black shooting whites. I right. think if we believe in free speech and fairness, at least if we're gonna if we're gonna talk about police brutality, and I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but then let's just be fair and talk about all of it. Well, of course, that's not not a part of the leftist culturally Marxist narrative. But I think it's uh, through uh, fear and just playing on worldliness. Um, I will tell you this, though, and it's important to understand, Eric, to those people who say, "Well, this is not an issue like inerrancy." There can be honest disagreement about it. At least we're not talking about the authority of the Bible, but actually we are. Because um, if we do, because if we do give in on this issue of uh, CRT, we're eventually going to gut the gospel and gut biblical authority. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. One of the other things I want to ask you: so when you read Rush Dooney, um, what years were his institutes written? Seventy-three. Okay, seventy-three. One of the strangest things for me is, and just yesterday I had it open, I was reading through the Sixth Commandment, 
I don't understand how he saw so clearly what was going on, but then the stuff he said in 73, it, it, it is our culture today. It's like we're downstream from exactly the statism and all the stuff that he was describing. Why do you think he saw those things so, so clearly as he did? And, and, and by the way, many people didn't in that era. That's right. I think I've got a good answer to that. I think that he came out of a uh, part of a, a stream and a way of thinking that, um, which he didn't originate, but he was happy to acknowledge, and that is the worldview as Christianity of Abraham Kuyper and Herman Bovink and Cornelius Van Til and Herman Duyavert. The answer to that question is he was truly, and all of these others, truly worldview thinkers. Yeah. Uh, I like what Francis Schaeffer, though on a more, he said some of these things, though on a more popular level, not so much scholarly, but he said the problem with American evangelical Christianity is we think in pieces rather than wholes. So what um, Rush saw and those before him saw is we have to think in terms of wholes and not little pieces. So he was able to see the the importance of an entire worldview. He understood that the battle was never against simply uh, abortionists versus pro-lifers or uh, homosexuals versus heterosexuals, but a distinctive Christian worldview versus a Darwinian, humanist, nihilist, yep. um, that kind of where all of that, that humanistic, let's put all of that under the rubric of humanism and secularism. That was the great battle. So he was able to critique, as many others were able to critique those by a distinctively presuppositional and Christian worldview. Uh, that's why he and others can see these things, and those that don't have this robust worldview tend to either buy into it or kind of helpless before it. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a huge point. I think that's, that's a great way to put it. The other question I have is, this guy has had tremendous influence and is still having influence on a great number of Christians. Um, and I've tried to encourage people, like, you need to read his stuff. One of the things that shocked me, though, Andrew, was I, I only recently, maybe like two years ago, I heard him speaking. And I was a little blown away because it was very dry. Um, he's not like hyper emotional, like a lot of speakers you would expect today. But yet it's, it's so much of it is about the message, the clear thinking. Why do you think he resonated the way he did and still does today? Well, you got to remember at the time, particularly in the 60s, dispensationalism was rampant. He was arguing for a victorious eschatology of postmillennialism. Antinomianism yeah. was rampant. He was arguing for a return to God's law. Evidentialism was rampant. He was arguing for Van Til's presuppositional apologetic that everything must be based on the word of God and we can't compromise. Uh, so it was a breath of fresh air uh, to people who saw their culture completely in collapse and free fall in the 1960s. By the way, we're also seeing a sort of a replay of the 60s now. Uh, some similar arguments, uh, similar issues, as well as some new ones. And so uh, I think for that reason, I think Christians that understand the importance of a Christian worldview will always turn to people like him and others in that uh, broad, uh, it's called reformational tradition, in that broad tradition, to address issues that cannot be addressed by the sort of happy-clappy pietism that's so prominent uh, today. Yeah. A follow-up to that, too, is if you mention, mo most people are not going to know what you mean, but um, if you talk about things like Christian Reconstruction, if you talk about things like theonomy, uh, most people don't know. But if they do know, what you're going to look up online is 
is bad. Um, and it was interesting, even recently, the Gospel Coalition, of all people, had an article on basically like the dangers of theonomy. Um, I heard it addressed one time from a PCA church in Illinois, and the pastor said something to the effect of, you know, guys, we need to stay away from heresy and false teaching and theonomy. Um, that was sort of the view, you know, and everybody was like, they didn't know what it was, but it was horrible. Why do you think it got the bad press that it got, those, those, those terms and, and what's behind them? Well, po one positive reason, one uh, negative reason. Uh, the positive reason is it, uh, it was an aspect of this broader worldview as Christianity that uh, if you're a pastor of a church and are a pietist and you have people reading books saying we need to apply the law of God in society in economics, and therefore opposing socialism and yeah. supporting free markets. And uh, you mentioned earlier the importance of amassing wealth in a godly way and the compassionate use of wealth and the generation of wealth and um, what the law of God says about sexuality and how to deal with that in a culture. If you're not committed to that, you would feel that is a, that's a deviation you know, from the gospel or from what you're doing, so you'd consider that dangerous. Yeah, I'll tell you honestly, another reason for the bad press was a lot of the fault many of the original theonomists, and that is they were personally, uh, in a lot of their dealings with one another, just spent a lot of time attacking one another, and it's just, that was legendary. I observed that close uh, at hand, and that was just bad. I think had they not done that, things could have uh, uh, happened, uh, developed a lot differently. Many people today that oppose a, a strong, robust worldview-ish um, law-based pronomian faith don't know about that. But at the time, that was one negative aspect of the negative impact in a lot of these groups. Today, the issue is more conceptual differences. And uh, I think those are the two, to me, those are the two things that explain the hostility that, you're, that you tend to see. Yeah, it's also interesting. Um, I think about this like in the homeschool movement. Like in the 80s, you had a lot of homeschoolers who were I, the best way I know how to describe it is just weird. Um, and they had to be because it was so countercultural. Um, it definitely wasn't mainstream, but you had just had people that, I mean, I remember homeschoolers when I were, when I was a kid, it was like, oh, these are the weird kids who like, you know, dress like the Amish and you thought they were Amish and they drive like a 1970s, you know, station wagon and they don't watch TV and it, it, they were kind of awkward socially. Like that was a very real thing. But today homeschooling is, pretty mainstream, I would say. Um, I wonder if some of that was the kind of what happened with Reconstruction and Theonomy early on. It seems like now you, you have, you know, even guys like Doug Wilson, it's kind of been more of a, it's not as weird. Yeah, it's more mainstreamed. Yeah. 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 More mainstream. Um, but the other, the other interesting question that I have about it is, you know, every, everything has to sort of have I hate to even use this term, but guys who are sort of like brand managers. And if those guys do a really good job pastorally, then it can take root. And if they don't, and like you said, if they're fighting, um, it, it tends to make it look really poor. One of the things that, that I want to ask you about um, that a lot of people have asked, I've asked it, what in the heck happened to Joel McDermott? Like American Vision, that whole thing, right? Originally very... I loved it. Um, and then, like, now he's like a CRT lawyer. 
Well, in my view, um, and I have some people that were very close to him that describe what went on in his life that I don't feel um, obliged to share that, but on a more public view, sure, uh, I think that he was committed. Uh, in fact, wrote a sort of a revisionist uh, uh, book on theonomy, but uh, he was uh, somehow enticed into um, the notion of um, you know critical race theory. And uh, tragically, that's not where American vision was. And so they came to uh, somewhat amicable parting of the ways. Uh, the good news is that Gary DeMar is back at the helm, and it's restoring that vision. But beyond that, that's about all that I can say. And it really is a, it's a very sad development, but I must say it's not an unprecedented development. You have other people in various groups and denominations that you would never assume would have bought into critical race theory, or at least are tolerant of it, that you would have said 10 years ago, this would be the last person I would assume, or the last ministry that I would assume have bought into it. And uh, sadly, yeah. it happens. So uh, beyond that, for personal uh, psychological reasons, I don't want to speculate. But uh, the good news is American Vision's back on track, so I'm, I'm glad for that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to ask you now, Andrew, a couple of articles that you've written, we can kind of close here, uh, but I want to dig into a few of the articles, both kind of about John Piper. Number one was about John Piper and his political statement pre-election about Donald Trump. Um, mm -hmm. You've written about this, I believe it was on Substack is where I read it, mm -hmm. uh, which I would definitely encourage uh, people to check out your Substack. They can sign up, subscribe, um, and we'll provide links for that in the show. But at the very most basic level, John Piper was the quintessential, I don't like his mean tweeting, he's mean, you shouldn't vote for him. Um, and that was, that was kind of it. But I want you to unpack for me what you saw happening with his response um, when he, we, he put that letter out. What were the issues? What was his response? So I think you've pinpointed it pretty well. Um, he essentially was saying, without even mentioning Trump in the, it was interesting, he didn't even mention Trump's name. Yeah. He said, we don't want to jump in on either side of this issue. And he was creating, and I think this was particularly troublesome, a moral equivalence uh, between the issue of abortion and Trump's um, uh, nasty language and his uh, apparent lack of humility, as well as some of his earlier amorous sins as adulteries and so on. Uh, I think that was an utterly false equivalent. Being a pietist, John Piper tried to make the history of Trump's personal sins on a par with the uh, public uh, legal support for things like abortion. And I pointed out that that's a false equivalence. Yeah. Uh, his point was that, well, God will judge, uh, you know, these are terrible sins of Trump's, particularly the uh, sexual sins. Uh, pride and so on, and God will judge him. My response was, well, if he hasn't repented, yes, that's true of anybody. God will judge him. But that's very different from the legalization of uh, abortion and the legalization of uh, so-called same-sex marriage. Yeah. So, uh, but if you'll think about it, Eric, here's the key. For a pietist, since the, the apex, the highest point of devotion is sort of a personal relationship to the Lord, a warm personal relationship, the most grievous sin is a lack of that personal relationship. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. If you think about that. So this was not illogical on Piper's uh, part. It was wrong, but it wasn't illogical according to his basic orientation. Well, my view is that all of these are important and that specifically the, the legalization for, and he, I'm mentioning abortion simply because that's one that Piper really stressed. Yeah. Piper was arguing against the idea of Christians who would vote for Trump simply because he would keep abortion at bay or oppose abortion. Yeah. And he was basically saying, well, he's, you know, he's had adultery in the past and he's not humble and all that. And therefore, these are basically equivalent. But that's false. Because, but if you're not interested in the public affirmation of the faith, not interested in the moral law of God as it applies in culture, you would consider that very inferior to one's personal relationship to God. That's where I said his pietism was so dangerous. Yeah. Um, I wasn't an apologist, and I'm not an apologist for Donald Trump, but my point is Trump would be vastly superior to Joe Biden simply because, well, we've seen even in the last few months what Joe Biden has done. So that's separate from the sort of personal, highly personalized private faith, which is, I'm saying is not unimportant, but that was all important, it seems to me, seems to me for, um, for a Piper. And that's where I think his error came and why he could say, I'm not voting for either. Yeah. Uh, there are a number of other problems, which is, um, you know, in a two-party system, you don't get the luxury of saying, <laughs> I'm not going to vote for either. But yeah. that, I think, is what was going on. His pietism led him to diminish the importance of these cultural issues that really were at stake. Yeah, and it's it's tied to another question I have for you, which is, I know that it happens. I'm not sure why it happens exactly. But among these types of pietistic evangelicals, what I've called Big Eva types, you find a tendency that they punch very hard to the right. They're always trying to distance themselves from the right. That's right. And they're always trying to like blow kisses to the left. So what was interesting to me is, when Donald Trump was being evaluated, these guys, you know, and, you know, French and uh, Rod Dreher, these guys were kind of in the mm -hmm. same boat. When mm -hmm. they're evaluating Trump, it's like, this guy's a pig. He's mean. He says mean things about women. His tweets are mean. But Joe Biden is kind of a piece of garbage. I mean, he's, he's right. not like the model of pietism either. So I'm That's wondering right. what, what is compelling them to be that way, like friendly to the left, hateful to the right. Well, I mean, some of it's just dispositional. There are, they see a few cranks on the far right and they oppose that. Well, yeah. you can oppose the disposition of cranky people and still recognize the truth, Yeah, uh, which is what, what we must do. Yeah. But the point about that, there is, you're absolutely right. There's not an even-handedness there. This is why during the Trump years, I said, the only evangelicals that are entitled to criticize Donald Trump are those that were absolutely rigid toward and criticized Barack Obama. Strangely, yeah. though, some of the very people that let Barack Obama skate most of the time offered the most scathing criticism of Donald Trump. And by the way, now that Trump's no longer president, the same as now there's this reversion to Joe Biden. There's very oh, yeah. muted criticism of Joe Biden from some of the same people who are constantly on a barrage against Donald Trump. Well, there were things about Donald Trump to criticize uh, he, in violating the law of God, and I'm very open to that. But the fact is, don't criticize Donald Trump for his violations of the law of God when you're quiet. I think part of this is the desire and a lust for respectability. 
Mm. Uh, liberals tend to control the elite institutions. Yes. Uh, the universities, uh, the most, not all the political institutions, uh, the media for sure, Hollywood, they're in a position, they have these fulcrums of uh, cultural power. Therefore, conservatives kind of want to, to use your language, kind of blow kisses at them and really say, whatever we are, we're not like these cranky nutballs on yep. the right. Well, I think what they ought to say is we're not like cranky nutballs on the right, and we're also not like these uh, godless ideological nutballs on the left. Yeah. So let's be an equal opportunity uh, attacker. Yeah, that's huge. Uh, one of the other things, and you mentioned this we were talking about before, but I, I want to ask you, I think maybe it's at the root of uh, some of what's gone on with, with Piper and politics, but there's sort of this notion among Christians, I've heard it a lot, uh, all sin is sin in God's eyes. And so, like, oh, personal sin? Well, Donald Trump had a lustful thought. That's just as wicked as, you know, killing 40,000 Jews or, you know, the, yeah. the cultural level. And, and most people, I think, if you just step back and you think about it, you can say, well, yeah, Donald Trump might not be a great guy, but um, it, he was putting in place, you know, some measure against abortion. That's right. And, and uh, same-sex marriage, yes. Yep, same-sex yep. marriage. And even I thought, I was very critical of this for people who were pushing to vote for Trump in the first time, um, but they kept saying he's going to have the chance to nominate uh, Supreme Court judges mm -hmm. and, and many other federal appointments, too, that people missed. Yes. And I, I, I had to look back and go, you know what, a lot of those people were right. And that probably, I mean, it, it, our, our situation is not great, but it was certainly better than having absolute leftists put on, oh, put on those absolutely. benches. Absolutely. Oh, uh, his record for... Uh Judicial appointments exceeded Ronald Reagan's. It was just utterly stellar. Yeah. No, that's, that's correct. I think going back, though, the main question about this equality of sins, I think they make the mistake when they read in the Bible that he that sins, uh, commits one sin and breaks the law is guilty of all. That's true. That doesn't mean that all sins are equal, however. Yes. Uh, the last commandment is a command against covetousness. But there's no penal sanction to covetousness. I, can't, I don't know who's coveting. I can't look in anybody's heart. So yeah. they re what they really want to do is they really want to take God's standards of justice before in the eternal state when we stand before him. He reads the thoughts and intents of men's heart and drag that down into history and think that they can judge everybody on the basis of what God is going to be able to judge them on when he reads hearts. But that's false. I mean, that's also true of sexual sins. I know of some people who say, well, uh, yeah, homosexuality is wrong, but let's just remember it's, not, it's, a, it's just as bad as adultery. No, it's not. In Romans 1, Paul makes clear that it's an ultimate sin in a cultural way. Uh, adultery is wrong, it's sin, it's destructive, but it's certainly not as culturally destructive and demeaning as the sin of homosexuality. And that's true of other sins as well. So there, that's another element of pietism, though, is the sort of egalitarian approach to sin. But it's not. Uh, there are gradients of sin, no question about it. Some sins are worse than others. If I lust after a woman uh, in my heart, that is a sin. If I commit adultery with another woman, that is destructive of a marriage and of a society. Those are two yeah. very different things. Yeah, and I think that's why in the Old Testament it's very helpful. Um, a lot of the case law you read, and it's like, well, some sins are punishable in different degrees, which means that culturally, societally, they're, they're not all the same, and they have differing levels of impact and effect, and so we have to deal with them uh, differently as well. Absolutely. Well, Andrew, thanks for joining us on the show. We will provide links uh, to all of your resources that we talked about in the show. 
and we encourage people to check those out. Thanks again for joining us. Yeah, you be sure when it's done. Send me the link, and we'll, uh, we'll I'll promote this show, too. Absolutely. Will do. Thanks. God bless you. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. Great time talking with Andrew Sandlin and a lot of really good information and thoughts, analysis on what is going on in the culture. If you get a chance, we do appreciate you leaving a positive five-star review on Apple or wherever you listen to this podcast. Also, be sure to check out ericcon.com. That's E-R-I-C-C-O-N-N.com. You can sign up for membership there to support this work. You can also find pint glasses and t-shirts. You can order those and we will send them to you so you can represent the Hard Men Podcast. Again, special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. You are what makes this work feasible long-term and we deeply appreciate all of your support. Until next time, men, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men.